Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad, Alun Polat. Got a lot of things to cover today. A lot happening in tech that involves travel or that's going to affect the travel uh, industry quite a bit. So I wanted to talk about that. I want to dive into a couple of things, a couple of buzzwords you might have heard a little bit about, especially in the last week or so. So I want to talk about what those technologies are and how they are going to affect travel potentially in the not so distant future. Then we're going to talk a little bit about Stadia because, I, that, you know, that story just keeps getting more and more bizarre. And we're just going to follow it and see where it goes because Stadia is in a state of dysfunction. Very interesting. I hope you're not invested too heavily in Stadia because, well, the story just keeps getting weirder. Then I want to talk about the man who was the king of an island in Australia. And now that island is a major touristic attraction. Well, when there's no pandemic. And then I want to share with you a recent clip of the Fox Nomad YouTube channel where I posted about the differences or the comparisons between India and Pakistan and address some of the comments there. It's a deep history and I stuck my toe in the waters of that controversy and I want to share the audio version of that with you. But first I want to talk about NFTs. These are non-fungible tokens. You may or may not have heard about these Essentially, I want to break down what these are because they're a little bit confusing when it comes to the digital world, but when it comes to the real world, the tangible world, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit more of a familiar concept. So I want to go and start off with these tweets. There's a 13 thread tweet. I'm not going to read all of them, but I want to highlight the basics from Morning Brew, which talks about NFTs. And then I want to add my thoughts on how this is going to affect possibly your What's in your pocket? What's in your wallet when you travel? So NFTs, for those of you who don't know, stand for non-fungible tokens. Non-fungible token means it is non-fungible. There's only one of them. So when it comes to things like baseball cards, for example, let's say we get uh, some famous baseball card from 1950 sells for a million dollars. A lot of us are very familiar with that concept. That's something that is rare and it has value. And we know it's rare because there's only one of them. We can hold it in our hand and it often comes with some sort of certificate of authenticity. Now, having that as a baseline, let's talk about how this affects the digital world. From these Morning Brew tweets, if you take one thing away from this thread, it should be that NFTs are unique, one-of-a-kind assets. Before NFTs, digital assets could be easily duplicated. Screenshot a picture and boom, now there's two of them. Now, I will add this, you can still screenshot a picture, you can still take a copy of a file, you can still copy a recording of a piece of music on the internet. None of this changes with NFTs. None of that changes. If you want to screenshot a picture of, it's like taking a picture of the Mona Lisa. You still can take a picture of the Mona Lisa. That doesn't mean that picture on your camera is the Mona Lisa. It's the same thing with NFTs. You can still screenshot an image. You can still copy and paste a piece of text. You can still copy and paste a, a video file, but that doesn't necessarily mean, it doesn't mean actually, that that is the original file. So the only way to own an NFT is to buy it through a transaction that is recorded on the blockchain. Blockchain, which you may also have heard of, is a way of publicly documenting transactions. You buy this sweet piece of artwork from an artist, for example, the deal shows up on the blockchain. Now there's a public record of your proof of ownership. So the morning brew goes on. NFTs establish one, authenticity, and two, chain of ownership for a digital piece. In short, NFTs have turned digital assets into something that can be scarce and valuable, 
much like real art in the real life world. And recently this market has popped off. Twitter user Mad Dog Jones made $4 million in nine minutes. Logan Paul, you may have heard of, is also selling Pokemon cards and other NFTs and made millions of dollars doing that as well. And the NBA is getting into this game. A couple days ago, a LeBron James highlight sold for $208,000. And that's essentially a small clip. You can say a GIF or GIF or whatever you want to call it. A small video clip, very short, of him just dunking on everybody. It's a great clip. You could easily copy it. But the NFT, the original of that file, only works for one person. You only have one original of that file. Even more bizarre, those of you who've been around know the Nyan cat, Nyan cat. Do you remember that? That the cat that just keeps going on and on with rainbows coming out of its back end. The original creator sold that for $580,000 last Thursday. According to the New York Times, an animated cat with a pop tart body was sold for $580,000 on Thursday. The sale was a high, new high point for the fast-growing market of ownership rights to digital art. Now, The Morning Brew does explain this question, which you're probably asking at this point, why the heck would someone pay over half a million dollars for Pop-Tart Cat? Well, that's the same reason someone would spend $1.4 million on a piece of shredded Banksy art. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and some rich person wants to own it. Uh, that's a great explanation, very to the point. So in concluding this thread, it is just the tip of the NFT iceberg. There are even more uses for NFTs outside of buying and selling art. Ticketing to events, digitized forms of ID like passports, and limited edition items like video games, and a few more use cases are being explored. NFTs made it so unique digital items could be bought and sold with ease. It's still the very, very early days, but the size and frequency of NFT transactions shows that the stage is set for a whole new asset class to make its way into the mainstream. Now, let's talk about how this affects travel. You just heard a little bit of that, a little clue. That might open the way for digital passports, so some sort of international digital passport system. Imagine just being able to show your piece of your NFT from your phone, and there you go. Now you have a digital file that can only be owned by you, which makes it great for things like driver's licenses or passports. And imagine now, I've always thought about this 2021, and yeah, I know, imagine there's no pandemic and we're traveling and some of you are traveling or whatever. Uh, you've got a passport. It's just a piece of paper that people are stamping. Yes, there's a computer back end where those things are being traced and recorded, but the whole paper part of it seems very ancient. Now, NFTs change this and it makes it possible for you to have a passport that can truly be unique, that can truly have a public record so that you are the only owner of that passport. Imagine how nice that would be, how much faster it would be to travel, and how much more secure the whole system would be. Content creators, I can imagine if you have an NFT, you can now sell your photos with an NFT. Now, a lot of online photographers, the travel photography that you're just giving away for free on your website or on Instagram, now you can make those NFTs and then they have a special value that people might want to pay a premium for. And that's not to say that people buying NFTs are going to be all spending millions of dollars. There can be small transactions that can take place as well. Like I mentioned, videos, maybe you, you make short videos online, or like I said, you sell photos. Uh, those things come to mind for me when it comes to what creators could potentially sell. So you could have a market of NFTs, so someone could 
own the original file of that picture you took of that beautiful beach in that beautiful country you visited way back when. It opens up this market for, I think, a lot of people and a lot of creators who are making digital things to sell or find a way to make money off of those creative works that was impossible basically before because you couldn't, you know, why would someone pay you for a digital photo? It doesn't make any sense because you can just copy that photo. It's so easy to do. And in the past, you know, trying to stop people from copying or downloading files has really failed. It only blocks really the, the sort of the high level attempts. But if you really want to get at a file, you can easily make a copy of it. If you make music, for example, the original music file, it's happening with NFTs now, you could sell that original file so someone could own the original track of the song you just wrote and released. And the reason I wanted to talk about NFTs is because it opens up so many possibilities now that we can have using blockchain, now that we can have a way to authenticate and track and make unique digital files, which in the wild, wild west of the internet right now, you know, is not possible, but things seem to be changing on that front. And it will have a big impact on how we identify ourselves and maybe get rid of passports once and for all, because they are really annoying. Just... Imagine not having to go to an office or send your piece of paper book away to get renewed or to get a new one. It's not too far off in the future. Thanks to the at Morning Brew account on Twitter for those highlights. But if you have any questions about NFT, you can hit me on Twitter at Fox Nomad. Hit me up and let me know uh, the technical side of those things. I'm very well versed in in terms of the I don't want to say mathematical components, but of the of the technological aspects of it. So if you have any questions, let me know on Twitter. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is Clubhouse. So I've been getting a lot of questions about Clubhouse. Am I on Clubhouse? Should you be on Clubhouse? What the hell is Clubhouse? Well, let me explain what Clubhouse is. I'm going to give you a really high level overview. There have been a lot of breakdowns on YouTube and on the internet that go into it deeper, but I wanted to give you the basics. Essentially, Clubhouse is an iPhone-only, invite-only platform for audio conversations. The way it works is you have some moderators, and then you have a bunch of people who are allowed to listen. They can raise their hand, so you tap to raise your hand, and then the moderator can give you the floor. And these discussions can cover all sorts of things. So you have Clubhouses about NFTs, you have Clubhouses about making YouTube videos, you have Clubhouses about economics, whatever, you have a clubhouse for that. So it's essentially if you've used Zoom or, you know, Teams or something, it's essentially like a Zoom call that's audio only and that is moderated by a couple of people who can talk and then give the floor to other people who might want to join the conversation. And that's basically it. I know you want to think, or it seems like, at least I want to think that there's something more to it, but that's pretty much it. What's interesting about Clubhouse is how it's been rolled out. And I think that's a key to its success. It is invite only. So only somebody who's already on Clubhouse can invite other people to be on Clubhouse. Clubhouse started with a couple of influencers, a couple of really famous people, a couple of very rich people using as their sort of their first user group who then invited people and it's now kind of spreading around. So if you don't have Clubhouse yet, you don't have an invite yet, but if you want to get on the platform, it's sort of reaching uh, that exponential level of people to where it's not too hard to find an invite now. 
So why would you want to use Clubhouse? Well, Clubhouse has a lot of different uses, I think. Um, but basically, essentially what I've been told and what I've seen using the app is that it's really good for networking. So if there are talks on specific things that you want to get into or fields that you are already in and you want to meet other people who are in those fields, then Clubhouse is a good opportunity for that. A lot of people have mixed thoughts on Clubhouse because it does seem very marketing and very networking oriented. It does seem like you can accomplish the same thing using a Zoom call or something like Twitter. Perhaps not surprisingly, Twitter has created something called Spaces, which is essentially Clubhouse just using Twitter. So if you have a Twitter account, you can use Spaces and now you don't need the invite and you're already on that platform and you don't need to sign up for something new. Facebook and Instagram are also going to be rolling out their versions of Clubhouses on their platforms, which might eat into the user base that Clubhouse is slowly growing on its own platform. But it looks like Clubhouse has some more competition because Twitter Spaces is on Android now as well. Personally, I think Clubhouse has hit a very unique point in our history because we are in a pandemic. A lot of people are home. A lot of people are using Zoom and other meeting services to conduct business. But you know that blasted camera at the top of your laptop gets in the way. A lot of people want to have video calls every time. And I generally like video calls. I generally like to see the person I'm talking to. I think it helps facilitate the conversation. They go faster. There's less dead air. I think it works out better. But a lot of people don't want to be on video all the time. Some meetings are really early or really late in the day. And maybe, you know, you're just in your car, for example. So you want to maximize that time. Clubhouse really works for that. It doesn't have a camera option. But now with spaces and with these other tools that are going to come out, as far as using Clubhouse, unless you're really interested in networking, I think it's a good place to be. But otherwise, I feel like Clubhouse has some stiff competition that's coming out that's going to really crunch its market. So it'll be interesting to see where Clubhouse goes from there. But I could imagine a couple of travel rooms on Clubhouse. And hey, you might just be seeing those. So I'll let you know if uh, if, uh, if I have some Clubhouses or I start some some meeting rooms about travel-related or tech-related topics. Those might be popping up. So it's a new place to kind of network with different types of folks. I think it's meeting different people. You know, there's more cross-field pollination there. It's less curated like on Twitter. But I think for most people, it's just sort of a wait and see. All right, I can't wait to talk about this. I know I'm probably the only person who cares at this point, but I, we got to talk about what's going on with Stadia because it's a, it's a disaster. So let's go back all the way to January, way back in January. Remember that month? Yeah, that's when I put out a video reviewing the Stadia controller. Stadia is Google's online platform for gaming. So essentially you have a Chrome browser, you log into Stadia, you can now play games on your laptop and your phone. That's how it works. These are games like NBA 2K. These are games like Final Fantasy, all the big games. I'm not much of a gamer to be honest, but all the major games, a lot of them are there. And what Stadia gives you access to, like if you're on a Mac, you can then play Windows PC-based games. It's really nice. If you've got a good internet connection, because you have to have an internet connection, you can't play any of these games offline. But if you don't want to buy a console, you're kind of moderately into gaming. Stadia seemed like something that was interesting. Now, Google was making their own games. They did hire some big game makers, but eventually shut that studio down. So they shut down essentially making all of their own games a couple weeks ago. So Google won't be making their own games. They were like, we're just going to use the games that are available and people can make their games for Stadia. Well, then they decided for 
unknown reasons, Google decided, which I covered a couple weeks ago, to shut down Terraria to lock them out of all their Google accounts. So now no Terraria, which has a huge user base. And then now we get this article from Kotaku. Stadia leadership praised development studios for, quote, great progress just one week before laying them all off. I just think this is fascinating. So developers at Google recently formed game studios were shocked February 1st when they were notified that the studios would be shut down, according to four sources, with knowledge of what transpired. Just a week prior, Google Stadia vice president and general manager Phil Harrison sent an email to staff lauding the great progress its studios had made so far. Mass layoffs were announced days later, part of an apparent pattern of Stadia leadership not being honest and upfront with the company's developers, many of which had upended their lives and careers to join the team. Google has declined to comment since, and five days later, Harrison appeared to reverse co course completely, announcing in a public blog post that the head of Stadia Games Entertainment, Jade Raymond, had left the company, and Google would not be investing further in bringing exclusive content from our internal development team at SG&E. Stadia developers learned the news, first reported by Kotaku, almost at the same time as everybody else, via internal email and a conference call with Harrison. The messy rollout came after an already grueling year working through the pandemic, and it was reminiscent of Stadia's own launch, which appeared rushed and left many of the features promoted during the services reveal, only to be added months later. So when it comes to Stadia, I think this is more evidence that Google is just going to kind of let this die. So... If you really want to play games on your Chrome browser or your phone, then you can. But a lot of the games that you probably want to play on your phone have a mobile version. You're much better off downloading those and hopefully those work offline. And if you're really into gaming and you want something that's portable, then a Nintendo Switch will do the job just fine. Actually a lot better than Stadia because many of the games you can play offline don't actually need an internet connection. Now, for those of you who are on Mac who want to play Windows games, that's pretty much Stadia's for you, maybe. But I don't think there's a lot of overlap there. I don't think that's a bunch of people. I don't think that's a ton of people. And I think Google has realized that. I don't think Stadia has been as popular as they were expecting. And they are slowly, well, not slowly, but just, just chopping Stadia limb by limb. And I don't know how long it's going to survive. I just imagine it's going to be like one of those Google services that you can think of. I, there are a bunch of them that have slowly been just left to hang out there. And then Google just announces, oh yeah, we're discontinuing service a couple of years later. Fascinating. Will be interesting to see what will happen with Stadia, but I don't think it's going to be anything good or innovative. So that's been a little bit of a tech and travel information dump for you. A lot of things are happening. I might have to come up with a follow-up episode not too long after this one to catch up on more news, but... This one caught my eye and I just wanted to talk a little bit about it. It's called The Man Who Was the King of an Island in Australia. So this is the story of Paul Seaforth McKenzie, who was a New Zealander living in Australia who aspired to be British in 1914, way back when. After declaring he was the king of this island, this island is called Shoalwater Islands. It's one of Perth's tourism treasures now, but at that time it was essentially, well, it was uninhabited. But he declared himself king of the island. He detonated explosives to create limestone caves, which he gave grand British names and tried to turn this place into a bizarre holiday accommodation. Mackenzie was a mining engineer who immigrated to Australia from New Zealand. And after squatting on Penguin Island, this Penguin Island on and off for four years, he was granted an annual lease of it in 1918. 
From that signed document emerged grand dreams. With the island under his control, Mackenzie called himself its king or, quote, governor, and set about making the land fit for royalty. His fascination with British upper classes prompted him to create structures which he endowed with splendid English names like Manor Hall, Tudor Hall, and Fairhaven. There's an odd to you Star Trek Voyager fans. Anyway, the former of these was his personal mansion. In reality, it was a little shack made out of timber and inside the beach caves, he, which he made with explosives. He designed a library, storehouse, and several guest rooms with shells, fireplaces, and stone-based beds. His dream was to convert Penguin Island into a tourist destination, but Mackenzie was unable to execute the bold plan before his lease was terminated in 1926. However, now, these days, Shoalwater Bay is a heavily protected marine park. Forget about detonating TNT. The park has strict rules on boating and fishing. No one can stay overnight, and one of the islands is entirely off-limits to humans, while another bans visitors during penguin breeding season. But people can still swim, snorkel, and kayak in its calm lagoon waters 12 months a year, sharing this ocean with exotic marine life. And yes, it is called Penguin Island for a very good reason. It is inhabited by a lot of wildlife, but especially these fairy penguins, which you can't see right now, but I'm looking at a picture of one. If you get a chance, Google it. They're pretty cute. And even though this marine sanctuary is now protected, up until a few years ago, real estate developers were trying to build a huge marina and housing development in parts of these islands. But years of spirited lobbying and protests by Shoalwater residents have helped halt this project despite state and federal government approval. But maybe this is a place to put on your travel plans when travel does resume and probably not going to resume to Australia this year. But eventually, at some point, you might want to go and pose like many tourists do in front of the caves that Mackenzie blasted away and he created as guest lodges. It sounds very cool to me. There are a lot of dolphins apparently that hang out in the lagoon. So that seems nice. Great place to snorkel and see some wildlife. And it might be an interesting destination to add to your travel plans. So right after this, for those of you who haven't seen the video, who haven't seen the videos engaging in this debate, engaging in this conversation of what are the differences as a traveler and traveling to and tourism between India and Pakistan? And those are two countries that I visited about a little over a year ago, early in 2020, before pandemic hit us. And it's hard not to compare them because of the shared history. I had just traveled to both one after the other. You kind of think of the other country when you think of the other country, right? So I decided to compare them and that has led into a lot of different discussions, a lot of different comments and feedback. So I wanted to address some of those and talk about the bigger picture of what does it really mean when you say that you like a country? What does that mean? I get into that. So I want to share the audio version of that video with you in this next segment. Do I like India or Pakistan or Pakistan or India? Which country do I like the most? Well, no, not really, because that question is really general. So I want to talk about why that question really doesn't make much sense. So for those of you who haven't seen, I've made a couple of videos after I visited Pakistan and India in early 2020, and I made a video comparing what it's like traveling in both places, just my observations for my recent trips there. And the comments section, well, let's just say it got colorful, and it's still getting more and more colorful with every new comment. So after that original video about six months ago, I put out another video responding to a lot of your comments, but I don't think we got to the heart of the matter, which is a lot of people assume or seem to take that 
I like Pakistan more than India and that I was putting India down. So let's talk about that. First of all, if I liked Pakistan or India more than one or the other, I would just tell you. I've been blogging for about 10 years now and been to over 90 countries and I'm newer on YouTube, at least uploading regularly. But across all of that content, I have to be genuine. I try to be genuine and as honest as possible because if I'm not doing that, then why should you listen to me or watch my videos? I make content because I want to help you travel smarter. So a generic statement like, I like one country more than the other, doesn't really make a lot of sense when you take a closer look. Both India and Pakistan are huge. Pakistan covers an area of 881,913 square kilometers and has a population of 212 million. India has a population of 1.3 billion, billion people and covers an area of 3.3 million square kilometers. That is a lot of space and a lot of people combined between those two countries. Those are two very large countries covering a very large area of the earth that happens to be very geographically, ethnically, and culturally diverse. And being so diverse and so big means that I haven't been to every corner of both countries and I haven't met everybody in both countries. Obviously, that's not possible. But what I've seen in both places is just really a sliver of all the things that are possible to be seen and experienced as a traveler. One similarity I will say, and this popped up a lot in the comments, are Pakistanis and Indians talking about how diverse the regions within each nation is. Urdu is lingua franca in Pakistan and Hindi in India, but both countries have recognized national and regional languages. A lot of national and regional languages. Hindi and Urdu might be the general language people know, but it's the general language so that people from different regions can communicate. If you're from India or Pakistan or familiar with either place, then you already know that. But if you're not familiar, let me give you some facts. Pakistan has 66 recognized language and India has 447. That's a lot of languages. In fact, it's the fourth most languages of any country in the world. India's second largest language family is Dravidian, which includes Tamil and is spoken primarily in the South and has 280 million speakers. That's 130% the population of the entire country of Pakistan. Across the border in Pakistan, three-fourths of the population do speak Urdu, but it's only the native language or primary language for about 7% of the population. I'm sharing these facts with you because I want you to understand how diverse and different these countries are within each other and how different the regions are within each other. So if we say India or Pakistan, we're really talking about a big national border around a lot of very specific regions which have a lot of very specific languages, a lot of specific cuisines, and a lot of specific cultures. It shows the incredible diversity within each country, but it's also a similarity between both countries that they are so diverse regionally across such a big portion of the country. That's something that India and Pakistan share in common. So now going back to the original statement, do I like India or Pakistan more? We think about it, really becomes such a general topic when you realize that that can mean a lot of things. Like India is so diverse, it's so huge. Pakistan has so many different regions. This really doesn't make much sense to say, I like one country more than the other. So like when people who visit India say, I like India, what they're really saying is on my trip, when I went to India, I liked X, Y, and Z places. I went to New Delhi, I went to, Bangalore, I went to, you know, the Taj Mahal, whatever you did when you were traveling and visiting India, 
the people you met, the food you had, the places you stayed, those specific experiences led you to the conclusion that you like India. But that's really a broad statement. You could have gone to different parts of India and maybe not liked it. Somebody could have taken the exact same trip as you, been on a tour group with you in the exact same group of people and been to the exact same places, stayed at the same hotels, eaten the same things, but just not like the experience and not like the country. But again, that's not fair to the entire country. That's just not liking a specific set of experiences. And of course, all of this is true for Pakistan as well. Look, for comparison, I know Istanbul very, very, very well, you could say. And when it comes to Istanbul, there are a lot of people who love Istanbul. And there are a lot of people who hate Istanbul, who have visited, who have been tourists in Istanbul. They just don't like it. A lot of people who've been to the city think Sultan Ahmed is the entire city. They think the entire city is like that. It's essentially the historic district, but it's really just the touristic area. Most locals don't live there. They just go to work there. It's not really a residential area. And as places build up and become more touristic, so as specific parts of a city become more touristic and more popular, they become less of a place for locals to live and they become more of a shopping center and sightseeing place to visit. So taking Istanbul as a comparison, when you visit the city as a tourist and if you stay and visit the touristy things to do, which are great, they are beautiful sites and there's a lot to see and you can get a lot of the culture and the idea of the city. But when you go to those places, you have to realize that you're seeing really the touristic area. You're not seeing actual local life. And what that can do is give you a warped perception of how much you like the city and the broader country in general. Because as amazing as those historic parts of Istanbul are, they come with a lot of the things that happen to a place when it gets popular. A lot of the crappy things that happen when a city or a part of the city or a place gets really popular with tourists, you get higher prices, you get less accommodation options that are good, you get a lot of those seedy areas, those kind of crappy hotels that look great online and then you book it and then like they're dirty or whatever. Then you get scams, you get people who aren't really genuine, people who are just trying to make some money off of you. You get those crappy parts of the tourism travel experience. That doesn't mean there aren't genuine local experiences to be had in the city or in those touristic areas. They're just a little bit harder to find. Now I've been to India 27 times or so. I've pretty much lost count, but I've been to India a lot of times and I've gotten past that touristic site. I've been to the Taj Mahal multiple times. I've been to the touristic areas a lot of different times. So in those multiple trips going back to a place really gives you that chance to get off the beaten path and you get to see places that are maybe smaller and more local. So you get to get an idea of what local life is like. And although I don't like to throw around the word authentic too much, but you just kind of get an idea of what a place is really like, like what every day is like, what everyday people eat, what they see, how they work. Whereas you don't quite get that as much at the main touristic sites. You just get to see touristic sites and how people who work in touristic areas get by. India has a lot of great qualities to it and that's why a lot of people go. And that's why a lot of people like myself go back for multiple trips because it is such a diverse and large place full of so many different things to see and so many different cuisines and so many different people that there are a lot of good reasons to keep going back. But because it is more popular when you go to the touristic areas, you might have a warped perception because of all the reasons that I just mentioned. Pakistan, on the other hand, has a lot less tourists. So even in their most, quote, popular places to visit for tourists, 
There still aren't a lot of travelers visiting, so you get more of those local experiences. You get more of a glimpse of what local life is like because they're just not overwhelmed with tourists. Now, that might change in the future, and I think there are a lot of good reasons to visit Pakistan when this pandemic is over, but I think as places get more popular, they tend to get all the natural things that come with that popularity in those very specific parts of a place, like scams, like expensive prices, like not the best accommodations, a little bit more navigating to do. You've got to get your guard up a little bit more when you're around people because you don't know at first whether or not there's a genuine offer, you're having a genuine interaction with the person, or if it might be a scam. I'm not saying that everybody's trying to scam you all over the world, but I'm just saying there are times, and as you travel more, you know kind of when you're in those big cities in this very popular touristic area. If you're in Times Square, I mean, how many people coming up to you are going to be genuine people that you want to talk to? Obviously, a lot of them are, but you kind of have your guard up there. Whereas if you're in a small town, let's say in upstate New York, far away from the city, and someone comes up to you to ask you for directions, chances are that's pretty much just going to be an innocuous event. Whereas in a place like Times Square, you've got to kind of keep your guard up. You've got to keep your guard up for your bag and your pockets. Now, that doesn't mean popular places are bad. You should go visit the places you want to see. And a lot of popular places are popular for a good reason. They're popular because the Taj Mahal is iconic. Times Square is iconic. These places inspire a lot of people to visit. That's really one of the motivations a lot of people have to go to a city. It's kind of the first thing that hooks you in to get you to a place. So if you want to visit the Taj Mahal, that's going to bring you to India. And in India, once you're there, you've got a lot of things to see. And maybe through my videos, you'll see something in Pakistan that hooks you and you go, maybe I do, maybe I do want to take a trip there. And of course, you don't have to want to see local stuff. You might just want to see the sites. It doesn't matter. Do what makes you happy. Travel for the reasons that motivate you and the reasons that interest you specifically. And of course, you can like and dislike what you want to like and not like. That's natural. We all like and dislike things. We all dislike places that we visit. We all like places that we visit. But a lot of times when I've not liked the place and I've gone back, I liked it or I disliked it even more. Things change because you change as a person. Time goes on. The place changes as time goes on. There are a lot of things that can happen that can make you have a good experience or a bad experience. One bad meal on a trip can throw off your entire perception of an entire city. And if you've traveled a lot, you know that. You know that one rude employee at a hotel can totally throw off your perception. But then also the flip side is true. You know, you can be in a city that you absolutely hate. And then you can meet a couple of people there and the experience is just totally different. And then you totally like it. It can change like a ratatouille moment from the movie. It can really change with a meal that you really enjoy or a food that you've never tasted or just a nice interaction with someone who's serving you the food can really change your perception about an entire place. So when you ask me whether I like India or Pakistan more, that doesn't really mean anything because we're talking about very specific places and experiences. I mean, I can say, yeah, I love India and I really do. I love traveling to India. I love traveling to Pakistan. I really enjoyed both countries. But when I'm saying those things, I can't talk about the entire country because I haven't been to the entire country. I haven't been to every corner of both countries. I haven't met everybody, like I said. I'm only talking about my specific experiences in a real tiny sliver of time, in a really tiny sliver of the entire thing that is within those national borders. So when you assume I like one country over the other, that doesn't really mean anything. And it's kind of demeaning to both places because they are so large and diverse. 
you've ever watched the news about any place that you like and you hear that happened in country X, country X is like this, then you know if you've been there, you can go, wait, that's not the entire country. That's just a small sliver of that country. That's true of everywhere. And the media tends to do that. They tend to generalize nations when they appear on the news because it's fast and it's easy and they don't have time to explain all the nuances. But here on YouTube, we kind of do have the time to explain the nuances and to go on the nuances in specific videos about a place and specific videos like this one. And if there's one thing that I've noticed after traveling to Pakistan and India both is that they are both changing rapidly. And in my next trips to India and Pakistan, and there will be trips to both countries coming up, they won't be the same. They won't be the same as they were last year, and I won't be the same. That's what I love about traveling and sharing those travels with you on YouTube. Plus, a lot of you give me great recommendations in the comments on things to do and places to see and things to eat for my upcoming trips. And I know the pandemic has gotten in the way, but believe me, I am taking notes for next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fox Nomad podcast. I really appreciate your five-star ratings wherever you're listening to the podcast. Hope you have a great rest of your day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.